I want to reclaim a view of communication as listening and talking. And one of the principles that should guide that is a seeking unconditional positive regard. It degrades our social fabric when we make all sorts of assumptions about people based on things we observe or even sound bites we hear, and then we fill in all the blanks and don't even give them a chance. I can act respectfully and I can respect you and, and be in some ways kind, even if I don't agree with your opinion on something. And what's beautiful about curious questions is that they imply difference. Welcome to the Diversity and Inclusion for All Project, supported by Kelvin University and the Kelvin Institute for Christian Worship. Together, we'll listen to key perspectives, build our knowledge, inform our thinking, and get a little better equipped to engage our world. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Diversity and Inclusion for All podcast, a podcast of Kelvin University. In this podcast, we offer on-ramp learning content on a range of topics to help us navigate our world and understand diversity and inclusion issues better. I'm excited to have with me Stacy Wieland. Dr. Wieland is a expert in organizational communication, and I've had the privilege and honor of working fairly closely with Stacy over several years on different dialogue and intergroup dialogue and community learning kinds of initiatives, including teaching things. And today we get to benefit from her expertise in organizational communication. Stacey, I'm wondering if you'd like to just introduce yourself briefly for our audience. Yeah, it's so nice to be with you, Penny. Thank you for having me. I am a communication scholar. I've worked in the field of higher education for over 20 years, teaching and doing research on various topics related to organizational communication and communication more broadly. I'm now working at a nonprofit called the Colossian Forum. So I've left higher ed and I am doing some applied dialogue work in that context, although we talk about our work pretty differently. So I just want to clarify that I'm speaking as a communication scholar rather than from my role that I love and um, would be happy to talk to you about another time, but um, I won't be speaking from that organizational perspective today. I think I might actually have you back to talk about your other work, but today we want to focus on some different skills, some ways of thinking about how to have some hard conversations, especially for our current moment. In the United States and in different organizations I know that I'm a part of, there is a lot of polarization. And I'm wondering if you can help us understand a little bit what makes conversations now so challenging. It feels like there's just so much stress and angst and I'm going to say meanness that I experience or that I hear of other people experiencing when it comes to having conversation, especially when we think differently about um, very important issues in our culture at the moment. So from your perspective, what is making these moments so polarized? What has changed? It feels like it's really gotten worse in the last while. I want to comment on a couple of different things related to the current divisiveness and polarization in society. We have this strong sense of individual rights and freedoms that are driving people, 
And we have this group identity, this sense of us and them and growing contempt and understanding of segmentation of society based on groups that is shaping our interactions. In communication, we have a theory that talks about navigating difference and communicating with others across difference. And we know that we interact differently with another when we see them as a member of a group primarily and emphasize their groupness or their group identity rather than encountering them as a unique individual in front of us. When we interact with someone as a member of a group, rather than as a unique individual, we tend to play up our own group identities. So that could be that I see you as a similar person to me in terms of groupness, and so I play up our similarities. But when we communicate across differences or perceived differences, then we play up our own group identity that is seen as different from theirs. So it actually leads to further distance because we don't, the the theory calls it accommodation. We don't accommodate. We don't come closer together. But what happens when I see another who I could perceive as different from me in some significant ways, but when I encounter them and interact with them and orient them as a unique individual, then I'm less likely to emphasize our differences and more likely to accommodate and even start to mimic and come closer together in how we communicate, what we communicate about, etc. And so we see a lot of polarization because we're boomeranging against and away from one another, different groups as we identify our groupness and come together under the auspices of strong division, it furthers our perceptual biases of that division. We start to perceive our differences as even bigger than they are. And so when someone says something that I don't agree with, my perceptual bias, if I'm seeing them as a member of a different group or especially if it's a group I have contempt for, that's going to make me perceive everything they say or more likely to perceive things they say as divergent and further away from my own points of view. Can you define for me or just describe a little bit more what this accommodation theory or piece of the puzzle is? Yeah, so it's a theory that says that we want to try and come together and build common ground, either around our points of view and also in terms of how we engage one another and how we communicate together. So accommodation is is about making room for the other and coming closer to the other in a way that, that we start to feel connected, more connected to one another, but it's also uh, a move of empathy, right? So if I accommodate and perhaps I see you, Penny, as very different from myself. But if I'm seeing you as a unique individual, I'm more likely to accommodate to how you're communicating with me and how you're interacting with me. I'm more willing to talk about topics that matter to you. And so this brings about a more sense of commonality and common ground, and then allows me to actually hear the differences that emerge as well. So accommodation is not about assimilation and everyone looking, being, or thinking the same way, but it's a, accommodation is about being able to bridge the chasm and come closer together as we interact. So it seems like actually empathy for another person, person I'm in conversation with, is a part of that. Mm-hmm. And actually, perhaps even thinking about valuing the relationship between me and this other person that I'm having this conversation with is also part of that, right? If I value the relationship, if I can find it in myself to um, have some empathy 
for the position, the stories, the identities of that other person, then that's that's part of sort of growing closer and, and actually having a good conversation. I want to reclaim a view of communication as listening and talking. When we think about communication, we tend to emphasize talking or think, well, I communicated, that means I said something. But communication is um, bi-directional and transactional and um, transformational. And so as we think about communicating across difference, we should think about it as a give and take. And one of the principles that should guide that is a seeking unconditional positive regard. By that, I mean approaching people with generosity, with an openness to be surprised, with suspending judgment. It degrades our social fabric when we make all sorts of assumptions about people based on things we observe or even sound bites we hear, and then we fill in all the blanks and don't even give them a chance. So unconditional positive regard means assuming the best in people rather than um, starting from a place of judgment. When I talk with students about engaging interpersonally across difference, I really emphasize that we need practices, we need tools or ways of trying to do it. And even more important is our posture or approach. And so I always say to students, please, on the final exam, don't talk about your physical posture. I mean, so much more than that. Um, but, But our heart posture, our orientation toward the other and toward the world. And so I would suggest that communicating across difference, listening across difference needs to start with reorienting ourselves toward the world and the the people we wish to engage. And so part of that is uh, moving beyond contempt. Part of our current moment is this growing contempt for people that we perceive as on the other side from us. Seeing We increasingly are dividing into this us and them and seeing others is not even worth engaging. Um, part of this is opening up and, and seeing the world in more nuanced ways, trying to get beyond night and day, easy bi- binaries around issues and opening up that there's a whole range of perspectives one could have on a particular issue rather than thinking in terms of just left and right. So those are some of the reorientations. Um, but in terms of reorienting towards people, I think one of the key moves is to 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 be mindful of not thinking about people as all one thing. So making room for people to be more than one thing and even to be contradictory in terms of uh, that we have multiple facets to who we are and sometimes those can be fragmented or contradictory. Also in terms of the posture of engaging others across difference, I really find the ideas of Martin Buber, who was a Jewish philosopher, to be really helpful. He talks about I-it communication and I-thou communication. I-it communication is when I focus on myself and then see the other as an object I can manipulate for my own means, my own ends. And so I-thou communication is other-centered, sees the other as a unique individual. As a Christian, I really emphasize that we see others as made in God's image when we see them as thous. And, and Buber, as a Jewish philosopher, was also drawing upon that when he used the word thou to describe it. But I-thou communication is encountering the other, learning from the other, being curious and open rather than closed, being expectant and open to being surprised by the other in our interaction. So that's what I um, share with students around posture. This means honesty, 
being somewhat direct, spontaneous rather than strategic and pre-planning our interactions, um, and being genuine and seeking mutual understanding and respect with one another. I really like that distinction between the I, it, and the I, thou. And I feel like it, it relates very much to your emphasis that I've heard you speak about several times on listening and how to do that well. So if I have an I, it orientation to the person I'm talking to, I really want you to listen to me and then basically do something because of what I'm telling you. But if I have a high I, thou orientation or approach, or as you call it, a posture, then we're both going to speak and we're both going to listen, um, hopefully with empathy, with recognition of the other person as an individual with mixed identities. What are some good things to keep in mind if we want to be good active listeners? Yeah, so if we want to be good listeners, we want to really start from the posture of curiosity and of seeking to understand. And as you said, in I-it communication, we listen for different reasons. We listen in self-serving ways. We listen, um, maybe we want to be listened to, and also we want to listen so that we can respond, so that we know how to better persuade, to uh, debate our point or get across our, our point of view. And so in a more dialogic communication approach or an I-thou approach, we want to get curious. And so that means listening in a way that is actually open to what the person is saying and not running two steps ahead to figure out how what you are going to say next. And that is a discipline that uh, I find I have to work work at because I've been formed in ways that that is not my default. So getting curious um, also has to do with the questions you ask. One communication scholar talks about counterfeit questions, these questions that are just not questions. Oftentimes we ask questions that are um, setting someone up to say a particular thing so that we then can respond with our zinger that we already have figured out. So instead we should ask curious questions. And, and these are authentic to the moment. These are questions, well, you can have some on hand that are your go-to and sometimes they're even prompts. Um, but really curious questions should be authentic responses to what is said. And so we would want to over time move away from, you know, a few stock ones that we have at hand and, and seem to work to be curious um, to really ask more spontaneous questions. Prompts like tell me more, questions that dig into someone's experience or seek to understand what they're saying more fully. Um, so you could ask a question like, well, how did you come to see it that way? That's a very good, curious question to try and go deeper and underneath the surface of what the person is saying to understand where it's coming from. What matters to you here? Or this seems really important to you. Can you tell me why? That would be a, a more um, colloquial, spontaneous way of asking, you know, what's led you to this? But questions that really respond to the person in front of us, to the conversation that's unfolding. And what's beautiful about curious questions is that they imply difference. You don't have to say, I don't see it the way you do. How could you have come to see it this way, right? That would be a more adversarial way to engage. But when you say, I really want to know, how did you come to see it this way? Implied in that question is that I don't see it that way. And so I want to know what led you to that place. So it's they're invitational 
and they're responsive to the conversation in front of you. Um, I think we can misuse curious questions in a few different ways. One can be when we ask people, especially people from marginalized groups, questions like this out of the blue. Um, they need to be in the context of relationship and in the context of a bid for connection and invitation to go deep together. So curious questions are maybe a strategy or something that we should be aware of if we want to be good listeners and we want to have, I would say, constructive, meaningful two-way conversations. Can you tell us a little bit more about the curious questions and what we need to be careful about when we're trying to use those curious questions to have a good conversation? One is asking curious questions with a non-curious posture. So that our tone and our heart need to match the questions. So we have to be genuinely curious. Otherwise, we can be manipulating others, um, even to look good, right, by being appearing curious. Um, and sometimes we might even engage in this way in a way that builds trust, but isn't actually genuinely about knowing and relating and understanding. So that's one trap is to make sure that our posture is actually curious and that these don't become simply a tool. Another thing we need to be careful about with curious questions is to make sure they're responding to an unfolding conversation and relationship in appropriate ways. We need to make sure we are in relationship in a way that invites going deeper, especially when we're talking about those from marginalized groups who have been mistreated or disadvantaged in society. So a way that this might play out is if we're in a predominantly white institution, we can sometimes approach people of color in our institution as if we could ask any question we want, that their experience is there for our use to understand, even for good goals like becoming more understanding and empath empathic um, around difference. If that's not reciprocal and if that's not invited, if we don't have some sort of relationship or context within which those questions are invited, they can be othering and harmful and violate privacy in ways that are not helpful. So that heart and that practice needs to need to align. And part of that is making sure you're responsive to a relationship, a conversation and a person in front of you that you know and love not simply um, someone that you're you're othering by putting them in a group. I know that you've done a lot of work um, specifically with intergroup dialogue. And while this is not a podcast devoted specifically to that approach to having conversations, I'm wondering if there's some key ideas or insights from different dialogic approaches that you've used with groups of people in different organizations that could help us think about how to have good conversations, even when they're difficult? Yeah, so to this point, we've been talking about communication that's dialogic, so a dialogic approach, which could play out in an interpersonal relationship. Those are the examples I've been giving and what I've been operating on. Um, but we can also engage in dialogue in community groups, in openness and relationship building, being curious and invitational and reciprocal in terms of trying to explore a problem together. So dialogue is inherently seeking to be collaborative as we come around a difference. And one of the marks of dialogue is 
seeking to hold intention, commonality, and difference. So dialogue often takes place between groups who perceive themselves as different and different. And so one of the first moves is building relationship and building a sense of commonality, helping them discover things they have in common. But it can't just be that, um, or I would say it's impoverished if it's just about common ground. There needs to be a willingness to surface and engage the very important and real differences that are held as well. So intergroup dialogue is one strategy or one model for engaging in group conversation that's dialogic, and it comes out of the University of Michigan. They're one of the main leaders in it. They do a intergroup relations program. So in an intergroup dialogue, it's usually a group of 12 to 18 people that come together representing two groups that have some significant difference, and then making sure there's two facilitators, one from each group. And the idea of intergroup dialogue is to have sustained interaction. So there's usually eight to 12 sessions over time. The belief is that relationship and conversation unfolds over time, and you have to be committed to some sort of long um, work together and to focus on lived experiences. And in a dialogic conversation, we emphasize speaking from our own lived experience rather than making broad, generalized claims. So speaking about our own experiences with an issue and personalizing it in that way. It invites people to really move from assumptions or what we might call unexamined opinion to trying to come to an informed perspective on an issue, to be considerate and to understand from lots of different perspectives before they come to some sort of settled judgment. What I like about the different dialogue approaches that I'm familiar with is that it really brings people together to have a conversation. So in some ways, it's a little self-selecting, right? If you choose to be involved in mm -hmm. an event or a group that's going to do this, it already you know, has a certain character to the conversation and the people in the group. But I really like that I can be in a space with people who think very differently on some very important topics, important to me in our society. And then suddenly they're telling me about their experiences, their stories, and it puts a face and really important stories to that other opinion, to the one that's different from what I would normally gravitate towards. And so it just helps me kind of understand what I'm going to say is the other side of the issue um, with more nuance and more personality and more empathy, right? I no longer say, well, how could a person think such things? In my mind, I'm going, oh, well, I know John or Jane who had this experience. And so they see things differently than I do. And having heard their experiences and been in a space with them where we're trying to listen well, it really helps me understand even my own position on something a little bit better. Yeah, I love that. That is a beautiful thing about dialogue, that you come to understand someone who sees things differently from, from how you see it. You understand them more fully. And you come to inspect and, and in, interrogate your own point of view and your own life experience and understand better how you got to where you are. And then there's an opportunity, if you want to, to to bring about some change in your own perspective moving forward. Dialogue does not presuppose change. It is not about saying we all need to come to some agreement, 
but that we should do the work of inspecting and examining and learning together. And then that offers us an opportunity if we want to, to change our point of view in some way. A dialogue is great for complicating our understanding and adding nuance and layers to our understanding. One thing I love about it is this builds on unconditional positive regard is that dialogue starts with the assumption that the people who people who see things so differently from yourself are acting reasonably. And it's being curious about what would make that point of view plausible? Because I, you know, oftentimes we look at someone else's point of view and think, that is so hard for me to wrap my head around. How could you see it that way? But rather than start, starting by saying, and, and if you see it that way and I can't understand, there must be something wrong with you, a dialogic approach says, I wonder what leads them to that conclusion. Because I'm going to assume they're being rational, but that I don't have an inside understanding of the rationality they're applying here. So let me try to assume they're acting reasonably and understand the the logic by which they come to that conclusion. I also like that when we engage in dialogue, we we do ask, what if I'm what if I were wrong? So coming in and saying, I don't understand it the way you do. Let me under help me to understand. And what would be the implications if if I were completely wrong on this? What what would change? Now that doesn't mean going in looking to change all the time, but there's also an openness to potentially be changed through the experience. I like how you've mentioned several times this posture of unconditional positive regard. I can act respectfully and I can respect you and, and be in some ways kind, even if I don't agree with your opinion on something. And I feel like that that regard, that respect, and to some extent, that kindness and openness to a conversation, to understanding where you come from, that is totally missing in some of our platforms today. Um, I'm more concerned about getting more likes and getting more views and kind of riling people up, right? Getting people excited or enthused about my perspective and my voice much more than creating a space where multiple voices can be heard. I can respectfully, empathetically try to understand a perspective, not my own. I feel like that's that's so missing. Yeah, it is. And I think we have these notions of civility and this desire to be civil and kind to one another. But oftentimes we interpret that in such impoverished ways because false niceness is not particularly kind. To just say, you know, well, I'm going to be civil and therefore I'm not actually going to disagree with you or, or go into our disagreement. I'm just going to stay on the surface and avoid that topic. That's actually not particularly respectful of another person. I would say it's a sign of respect and civility to be willing to engage those differences and to engage in the conversation. And it's assuming a level of trust and building trust to say, we can go into it, we can hold different perspectives, and I can still care about you as a person. We don't have to see everything alike to be in relationship. I think, too, that sometimes we talk about, can we just be civil? And we only bring that up when things have gotten hot and when things have gotten kind of mean. And then someone says, can we just be civil? And in some ways, they mean, can we just be quiet 
and not engage and not have a substantive conversation. And sometimes this even happens in families, right? Like we agree that we're not going to talk about politics at Thanksgiving dinner because it, 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 we just, you know, we're just going to be civil about it. And in some ways, that's the exact opposite of what we need in our current moment. Mm-hmm. We don't need to yell at each other with our ears closed, right? But we also don't need to avoid each other and be completely quiet to be, quote unquote, civil. Um, we need something in between. We need some of those things that I think your your insights from dialogue and from good organizational conversation and communication we need some of those mm-hmm. strategies and skills like you like you've been talking about to have a good posture in relationship with others to have curious questions some that are stock that we can pull out of our back pocket easily and then some that respond to the moment and to the actual content of the conversation that we're having i'm wondering if you have any stories or experiences to share about how learning and experiencing and building dialogue skills has helped families or churches or organizations uh, some maybe some insights or stories to take with us yeah i had an amazing uh, teaching experience teaching an intense interim course on dialogue and the students were just incredible we spent three weeks together talking about dialogue and what it looks like and how to do it and why it matters and how it fits into a Christian perspective. And, and it's slow work. It, we did a lot of trust building. So I didn't even bring them into dialogue circles till the last half of the class. But then we were able to engage questions like questions around immigration um, it was right before the election, the pre- last presidential election. And so then we got to engage in a conversation around the election and who we would want to be as a, a university community in the midst of the election. What would it look like to engage that well, despite differences? And the students really rose to the occasion of these conversations. It was um, really beautiful. And they continue to meet and do things after the class ended as well and to continue to stay in conversation. One thing that's helpful in dialogue is to speak from your own lived experiences. And so the, the dialogic conversation we had on immigration, I started by just posing the question, what experiences do you have? What life experiences do you have that bring to bear on this topic of immigration? One of the ways we structure dialogic conversation is to begin with a broad question like that, that is nonpartisan, that is not taking a side, and that is trying to solicit lots of different experiences or perspectives. Another really good opening question is, what's at stake for you in this? Or um, what's the heart of the matter for you? And then do what we call a go-round or a round-robin, where you just invite everyone in the circle to speak into the space. And you do that because you want to surface diverse voices, You and you don't comment on what each other say. There's not an evaluative component, because you want to affirm that everyone's um, answer to that question, what experiences do you have that connect with this topic, that they're all relevant. And so it was just amazing listening to the students. And here we are at a predominantly white, small Christian college in the Midwest United States. And just to open with this question, what life experiences connect you to the topic of immigration? All of a sudden, we started with a richer conversation because everyone was able to speak from their experience about connections to the issue. 
And, you know, some of them said, you know, I don't feel terribly connected to this issue. But I might have gone into that conversation assuming that that might be where most of them are at arm's length from the issue of immigration or the topic of immigration. And um, it was a really lovely surprise to hear all the rich experiences they had had and relationships they had with people who had immigrated and recently in many cases. And it just set a baseline for a conversation that we could go deeper. And the point of the conversation was not to solve the questions around immigration. It wasn't to come to some policy decision or recommendation, but the growth of the relationships, the understanding of experiences of people who were not like ourselves increased, you know, myself, yourself, not us as a group, but that each of us came to understand the world more fully and understand more narratives than our own narrative around immigration. And uh, so our understanding expanded and our understanding of our own stories expanded as well. I love this idea of starting out a conversation, a dialogic conversation, opening up that space by asking about what are your experiences or what have, tell us a story, tell us an experience that relates to our topic, um, that kind of is the context or helps shape how you think about this. And I like that too, because in some ways, I have to put myself out there, even if what I'm saying is I don't have a lot of immediate experience with this topic, or I only know that my sister or my brother or my niece or my nephew um, have experiences. But I feel like when I when I open myself up and I'm willing to share a little bit of my story, that puts me in a trust-seeking kind of posture, as you put it. And it's not only trust-seeking, but then when we start sharing and opening up, I think that kind of positions us a little bit as trustworthy. And um, both those things, I think, can be really important to establishing a posture, to establishing a context where we can ask those curious questions without a big agenda behind them. Um, And then we can answer some of those curious questions without feeling like, oh, this is going to come back and bite me. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that kind of question about our lived experiences to, to a particular topic can also expand our own understanding. I think a number of those students, if I had asked them before they entered the room that day, if, if it had been a yes or no question, do you have a personal connection to the issue of immigration? They probably would have said no. They discovered things from their past and present that did connect, that they might not have initially been thinking connected. So I'm wondering if there's any takeaways or advice that comes out of your expertise in organizational communication, in dialogue, and in um, having those hard conversations across lines of difference. Is is there anything that we can take away from those approaches, those things that can help us? And then I wonder how we can maybe have some advice about how to listen well and how to apply that to our social media settings. I just don't think social media is the most productive or helpful space to be engaging deep divisive issues most of the time. I don't think it's hopeless, but I think we have to be really careful because it's so, the posture is so important. And sometimes I'm reading the posts and the comments because I'm really curious and trying to say, 
I wonder how they come to see it this way. You know, it's that curious impulse and it's that unconditional positive regard. I want to better understand how they come to see it the way they do. But that's not always the posture I take when I'm reading comments or a, a post. So I need to stop myself. If I'm reading it just so that I can feel righteously uh, correct or feel <laughs> how ridiculous this point of view is, then that I need to check my heart, right? So the, the posture of reading, just like posture of listening, the posture of engaging in social media makes a difference. And I find that when I engage people outside of the controversial posts, when I cultivate relationship with people, um, maybe I don't comment on the posts that I disagree with, but that doesn't mean I ignore their posts or block them. I seek to comment on, on the pictures of their family and connect. And maybe that we want to be careful. We don't want to be inauthentic, but we should seek to go toward those who are who are different from us and not always focus solely on the conflict that divides us, focusing on the humanity that unites us and focusing on the things that we do have in common and building relationship. If someone that I know in real life, someone that I, I have a relationship with off social media, it would be better to pick up the phone or go for a walk or connect and get curious and have the conversation. I mean, we've all seen it go so terribly wrong in the comments on people's posts. Yeah. I think one of the things that I try and do is be a gracious host on my own wall in my own conversations. So I have become a little more bold in engaging divisive issues on social media um, but try to do so in an invitational way. And sometimes that has led to um, social media friends who see things very differently than me and my silo or my dominant friend group posting things. And I have always, um, when I post something and when there's a conversation going, I feel an obligation to be monitoring pretty closely and to protecting the people who might post and comment on my post in a way that doesn't reflect my point of view and wanting to respond to them quickly and graciously and in a bridge building way, not hesitating to, to, um, surface differences or at least acknowledge differences, but just wanting to make sure that I set a tone for response because I have a relationship with that person. If they're my friend on Facebook and they respond, I know them. And so I can um, be tender and careful and empathic as I respond in a way that I, I don't always trust anyone in my network to be. And so I try and be a gracious host and model a, a more dialogic approach of responding to comments. I, I can't say I've always done that well, but I do feel a responsibility if it's in my, if it's a comment on my thread, not to just, because part of me wants, most of me wants to hide and run and shut Facebook, maybe delete the comment that I made in the first place and just not engage. But what happens if I do that is that it's likely someone else in my network will engage and probably not in a helpful way. And so I often try and host by responding quickly and graciously and be overly gracious 
and make room for people to be clumsy because I want there to be room for me to be clumsy and me to make mistakes. I really like the idea of, in some ways, we can control how we open spaces and conversations, how we engage. We can't always control how other people do um, engage with the same topic or the conversation with us. And I feel like I, when when I also have conversations with friends and family, not on social media, but in person, right, as much as we do nowadays with COVID and everything, um, I try to do that. I try to kind of open the space in a way with curious questions, with um, trying to be empathetic, with inviting them to tell me how they see something, with being open to answering questions. I very often say, you know, I don't have all the answers, but if you have questions about this topic that is controversial and that we may think differently about, um, feel, feel free to ask. And I might not have a good answer, but I'll try. And so I try to create those spaces. And to be honest, most people just go, okay, and then they don't go there right away. But I feel like if that's a consistent message from me over time, so that will happen, you know, this summer at the barbecue, July 4th weekend, it might happen again at Thanksgiving, that if that invitation is there, that then even with my close friends and family who think differently on issues than I do, if that invitation is there, there's the chance, there's the opportunity for a relationship or community building conversation across our lines of difference in a respectful way, in a kind way, in a way, as you said, that makes it perfectly clear that there's this unconditional positive regard for you as a person and um, for understanding where you're coming from. And I think that's that's kind of what we can do as individuals um, in our polarized times. Yeah, I've talked a lot about posture. And I think one thing I should say about the the anti-posture <laughs> or the posture I'm seeking to move away from in a desire to be open and curious and um, have that positive, un- unconditional positive regard is I'm seeking to lay down the posture of defensiveness. And so I was thinking about this in terms of social media. There have definitely been times when my initial reaction to someone's comment on my post is to go full out defensive, to feel attacked. And I laying that down and seeking to be empathic to them and seeking not to worry about my own ego. When I act out of defensiveness and self-protection, that is when I get into some trouble in terms of my reaction. So whether in person or in social media, to be that unconditional positive regard is both giving them the benefit of the doubt, assuming the best, assuming they're being rational and some sort of rationality that I might not get, um, but being curious to understand it. And then also seeking to be gracious if they make a mistake or if they're clumsy or if they do say something in a way that is somewhat attacking, trying to de-escalate it by not by removing my own defenses as best I can. That's easier said than done. But I just want to mention that goal that I have for myself is to to move away from defensiveness. And, you know, my colleagues and I, we we teach this stuff and we talk a lot about moving away from a self-protective and defensive posture. And so that's been really helpful to have this shared vocabulary because now I find myself at work being able to say, you know, I'm so sorry, I came into that conversation defensive, and I shouldn't have. And so that, you know, that becomes a way for us to monitor and to 
to heal and to reconcile when we make those mistakes. That's great advice. I think sometimes we do have to be a little protective, especially of um, marginalized groups, as you've mentioned before. And um, I'm going to say tender or young um, voices. So I think we also just need to have a good balance between laying down our own, like not being defensive in ways that cut down communication and prohibit us having a constructive conversation that moves us both towards better understanding of each other. Um, it's important to, to do that, to lay down our own defensiveness um, towards those goals. Sometimes we need to also be a little protective just to maintain our own sort of psychological health and our ability to continue in this hard work of listening, understanding, and engaging across lines of difference. I agree with you, Penny, completely. It is a a balancing act. I do believe that it's those with the most power in our organizations, those with the most privilege in our society that need to lead the way in dialogue, or that I would hope would lead the way, that have an a responsibility to be curious and to, to be open. Part of privilege historically is when you have privilege, you don't have to see other things. One communication scholar talks about privilege as um, being in the front row of the auditorium. And if you're from a more marginalized positionality, you might sit in the back row of the auditorium. And it's much easier from the back row to imagine what the play looks like from the front row. And if you're in the front row, it's pretty difficult to imagine other positionalities that are behind you in the theater. And so it's those in the front row, those with privilege, who have um, a significant responsibility to try and understand other points of view. Because those who are marginalized already, to survive, they need to be able to code switch and understand other points of view. And so my hope is for those with the most privilege and power to, to lead the way in terms of listening and empathy and engaging in dialogic communication. I think, too, that if, if I have the microphone, if I have that privilege and power, part of being in dialogue, part of these constructive conversations is handing the mic over and to set up that person for success, to set up that other person to be able to present the story or the information that makes the best case for their position mm-hmm. um, so that we can all understand um, the different positions, the different perspectives in the room and where they come from. Yes. Stacey, I want to thank you so much for joining me today and helping us think a little bit more about what it means to have constructive and not hurtful conversations um, when we have different opinions on very important topics for our time. I don't think we've solved the problem of polarization in our country right now, <laughs> um, but maybe we can leave uh, today's podcast with just a few more insights on what we can do as individuals and as communities and groups to have better conversations, even when they're really hard. Thank you, Penny. If you're interested in learning about other ways for communities to engage well in polarized times, check out Episode 5 in our Diversity and Inclusion for All podcast. 
Episode 5 introduces two community practices. The first community practice we explore is story tables, which are listening to learn events. The second community practice that is explored in Episode 5 is conversation cafes. This engaging conversation with guest Michelle Lloyd-Page can help you think about ways to build skills individually and as communities for navigating our current moment in respectful and constructive ways. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to our podcast to stay informed about future episodes. Do you have a friend who would be interested in today's topic? We'd love it if you'd share our work with them. Our hope is that this project will spark good conversations and provide learning resources that inspire diversity and inclusion work. All views and opinions expressed in our episodes are those of the individuals and do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of Calvin University or the Calvin Institute for Christian Worship.